open your Bible to 1 Samuel 4, 1 to 22 is where we're going to be this morning. Actually, the second half of verse 1, so 1b technically, 1 Samuel 1b to 22. First Samuel 4, 1b to 22. Well, luck and superstition are common occurrences in sports, or at least they are believed to be common occurrences in sports. We see frequently, if you watch baseball, you'll watch the baseball player enter the field and leave the field the same way by jumping over the foul line because they believe that it is bad luck to step on the foul line. When a team has made a run for the championship, maybe they've come up short the previous year, you'll frequently see players refusing to shave until they get the championship. So you'll see men with big beards and maybe long hair because they refuse to cut their hair until they win. There are famous jinxes that have been blamed throughout history for teams failing to win championships. The Boston Red Sox had the curse of the Bambino. In 1918, they won the championship, the World Series, and then they traded Babe Ruth away in the offseason. And since 1919, they hadn't won a World Series until 2004 because of the supposed curse. Or the Cubs had the curse of the billy goat. Remember that one? Where the guy brought the goat into the field, and shocker, he was asked to leave. It was his therapy animal or something. It was animal he brought along with him, and he was asked to leave because it stunk. And the Cubs supposedly went on to lose every World Series until more recently because of the curse of the billy goat. Hockey fans throw octopi on the ice. Michael Jordan famously wore his North Carolina blue shorts underneath his Bulls shorts to get his six championships. Serena Williams wears dirty socks throughout an entire tournament. And so on it goes. But it's not just athletes. Regular people have their own superstitions. Breaking mirrors are said to be seven years of bad luck. Throwing salt over your shoulder is supposed to be good luck. A black cat crossing your path is bad luck. Rubbing a lucky rabbit's foot is supposed to be good luck. Bad luck is walking under a ladder, but good luck for a bride on her wedding day is traditionally wearing something old, something new, something borrowed, and something blue, which supposedly gives her good luck for her entire marriage, though statistically it's still a 50-50 shot. (laughs) It's another sermon for another day. Our superstitions aren't only in our day. Superstitions and luck... Is really seen throughout history, through many, many people. In our passage this morning, we find Israel battling with the Philistines and trying everything they can to reverse a losing streak. So when they try to make the Lord of all creation their lucky charm, they are sorely mistaken as things go catastrophically bad. Let's look at our text this morning, 1 Samuel 4, 1b-22. to Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. 
They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a god has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his, on his seat by the road, watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is the uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set, to that, uh, set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as, as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate. And his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. About, and about, that, about the time of her death, the woman who attending her said to her, do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. She did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the text that is before us is weighty, is glorious, is convicting. We pray that you would open it to us, that you would help us to understand it, to read it rightly, to interpret what's being said to us as a New Testament covenant community, that you would apply your word to our hearts, that we might be rightly convicted of sin, that we might be rightly moved to worship of you, to celebrate the God who is revealed to us on all of the pages of Scripture, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, briefly, we want to remember that Israel is in a wretched state at this very moment in the text. They've been brought really low up to this point. Now, we're at the very close, as far as the timeline of Israel goes, we're at the very close of the time period of the Judges. Now, you'll remember the Judges is that time period between when the children of Israel come into the land of Canaan and before they actually have a king on the throne. It's this very awkward time where the author of the book of Judges tells us at the very end, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So many in Israel are doing whatever they please without any regard for God whatsoever. They continue to act in whatever manner they see fit. We even saw that a few weeks ago that the priesthood was utterly corrupt. And we see that in the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, who are functioning as the main priests in Shiloh. Shiloh being the main central city at this time. This is before Jerusalem, right? This is before the temple in Jerusalem or anything like that. Shiloh is the kind of central hub at the time. Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, are performing their duties as priests. Eli is really too old to fulfill his duties, but he is sort of, if you might think of it as the, the kind of the, the father priest, so to speak, but too old to fulfill his duties. But what we find out about Hophni and Phinehas is that they're preying upon female servants that are in the temple. So that's one thing that they're doing. And then also they're stealing the choice portions from the sacrifices that the worshipers in Israel are actually bringing to sacrifice to the Lord. So Hophni and Phinehas are particularly vile. Worse yet, they're sons of Eli, who is, as I said, the priest, but he's getting very old. Although he seems to know that God is true, he seems to know the Lord, unlike we're told his sons do not know the Lord. It seems that Eli does know the Lord and have an affinity to some extent for the Lord, but he seems also to fear his children more. And so he doesn't discipline them the way that they need to. He doesn't uh, condemn them for their sin or actually cut them off from being priests. Instead, he continues to let them go and sort of cover his eyes and ears as if he can't see what they're doing. So he makes very little effort to correct them. But in the midst of all of this, we've also seen that God is getting ready to establish His kingdom on the burning ash heap of Israel. Israel has burnt the law of Moses to the ground. They no longer abide by it. There is no king in Israel, remember? And everyone's doing what is right in his own eyes. So it's not as though they're adhering to the law of the Lord that's set before them. No, they have burned it to the ground. But it seems as though the Lord is going to establish His kingdom out of the ashes. So while the law of Moses has been burnt to the ground, what we also see is that there is a, a faint ember of faith still left there 
in Israel. We see a faithful woman named Hannah who is barren, and the Lord opens her womb, and in the process, she prays to the Lord, and she asks the Lord if He does open her womb, then she would dedicate the child to the, to the temple, that He would serve as a, in the priesthood. And as a result, we saw last week in the sermon that Jeremy preached that this child Samuel not only was dedicated to the temple, but lived there and served as a priest, and he became the one that God was speaking through. This is the great transition that's happening there in chapter 3, remember, where God calls out in the night to Samuel. And it's in that little scene that now is beginning the transition from when God was no longer speaking to the corrupt priesthood, but is now reintroducing Himself to a totally new line, separate from Eli. Right? Not only that, but then at the very end, we also see that all of Israel is beginning to recognize that the priesthood that they currently have in the line of Eli, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, is defunct. The Lord is no longer dealing with them. He's no longer speaking through them, but instead, He has transitioned now to speaking through Samuel. And all of Israel is beginning to recognize God speaks to Samuel, and He doesn't speak to Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. They're done. That brings us to our text this morning where Israel is gathered against a familiar opponent, the Philistines. And what they see first in this passage is that God will be no man's good luck charm. God will be no man's good luck charm. Look at verse 1 there. They go out to battle against the Philistines. Israel is encamped at Ebenezer, a name which means stone of help quite ironically, and the Philistines are encamped at Aphek. Now, Shiloh is, again, where Eli is with the Ark of the Covenant and the main kind of central hub of worship. And you have to know, if you're just thinking about geography in Israel, you've got Jerusalem, which is a little bit more towards the south. Directly north of Jerusalem, about 20 miles, is Shiloh. That's where, obviously, Eli is. Now, where we think the location of Ebenezer is, where Israel is currently encamped against the Philistines, if you hang a left at Shiloh and you go directly west, 15 miles, you hit Ebenezer. And Ebenezer is in the hills. It's at the top of the hills. Aphek, where the Philistines are encamped, is about five miles beyond that, down at the base of the hills toward the coastland. Now, why is all that important to understand? Because it means that the very fortunate people of God are luckily encamped at a city called Stone of Help. They are very fortunate to be in the envious position in battle of having the high ground. They have everything going for them and nothing going against them, right? Well, with all that working in their favor, they got absolutely whooped in battle. 4,000 men died there to Israel at the hands of the Philistines. And so naturally, the elders of Israel get together and they think to themselves, why has the Lord defeated us 
before the Philistines. They actually say this out loud there in the text. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? And they're right to think this, I think, because the Lord is the one bringing defeat upon His people. This is the means by which He's going to fulfill the promises that He's already given to kill Hophni and Phinehas on the same day. And He's bringing about by actually bringing defeat upon His own people. And it's all going to be used to accomplish His purposes. But the elders, you understand, are probably also remembering something that Joshua told their forefathers when they came into the land. And we read about this in Joshua 23, verses 9 and 10. It says this, For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you just as He promised. You see that? The Lord is fighting for them. So what does it mean if they are defeated? It means the Lord has fought against them. So they ask that question, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? In all likelihood, the elders are remembering this promise of God, and they're essentially on the battlefield naming and claiming that promise on the battlefield. God will surely deliver. Stop me if you've heard that kind of ideology before. And God here in the text is very much failing their expectations. So, they devise a strategy. I know, they say, here's a brilliant idea. There at the end of verse 3, look at what it says. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it, or maybe he, it's the same word, I think it probably is he, may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. And soon enough, here come Hophni and Phinehas waddling out to the battlefield, carrying the Ark of the Covenant before them. I want you to understand what's taking place here. The people of God that are gathered there on the battlefield don't actually know God. You understand? They don't know God. We've already been told Hophni and Phinehas specifically don't know God. They know someone they call by the same name, sure. But they don't know the actual God who revealed Himself to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. The one who led their forefathers out of the land of Egypt and through the wilderness. The one who defeated the enemies in the land of Canaan before the armies of Joshua as they invaded. They don't know that God. And so... In the absence of the actual God of the Bible, they've crafted in their heads, in their hearts, and in their worship a God of their own making. And they've done whatever is right in their own eyes because the God of their own making requires nothing of them. The law of the God of their own making is non-existent. He doesn't care about our, the way we live he doesn't care about our sin. He doesn't care about our right or wrong choices. He doesn't care about any of those things. And they've served the God that they've made for themselves in whatever way they saw fit. So in reality, 
They don't serve this God of their own making. The God of their own making serves them. Yet now, when it comes to losing a battle, they go grab the ark as if they can conjure up some kind of ancient magic there on the battlefield. Maybe we can sprinkle a little dust before us, thinking that maybe God's covenant with us will save us. This is nothing more than wicked superstition. That's all this is. They've jumped over the foul line. They've thrown salt over their shoulder. They've refused to walk under the ladder or break the mirror or let the cat walk across their path. They've grown out their beards. They won't change their socks. They wear the same shorts. It's the same thing. They're invoking this magic onto the battlefield in hopes that they might win a victory here. But they have no desire to actually follow the Lord. You understand, there's a, there's a huge difference between a good luck charm and the God of the universe. See, good luck charms actually require nothing of you. You just keep them there in your pocket, or you, you do whatever it is you got to do, or you make your little motions, you wear your socks, or you, you do whatever. But they're there to serve your needs whenever you'd like. They have no will or desire for you beyond just fulfilling your every wish and desire. The lucky rabbit's foot that you might keep in your pocket asks no questions of you. It just sits in your pocket for you to rub whenever you'd like. The problem is the one true and living God will be no man's good luck charm. You can't just conjure Him up, say the right things to Him, and hopefully He'll give you what you want. And we'll see next week in chapter 5, He's not going to be anyone's trophy either. He not only has a will, but you understand that He is righteous. And to the unrighteous, the God that is righteous is in direct opposition to Him. So what that means for the very unrighteous nation of Israel as they seek to conjure up the good luck from the very righteous God of the universe by bringing Him onto the battlefield, He makes for a very unlucky charm. You understand. Of course, when the Ark of the Covenant appears in the camp, everyone in Israel gets really excited and they shout for joy, God has come among us. And those Philistines are about to die, and then obviously some distance away. The Philistines are looking up the hill, and you can imagine this thunderous roar from all of the armies of Israel on top of the mountain as they shout for joy after having just been whooped and lost 4,000 of their men. And they're like, what on earth is going on up there? And of course, some maybe their spies or something like that come back to them and say, hey, they've, they've brought some sort of box into the into the camp, and now they're really excited about it, and the, the Philistines are very nervous because it turns out God's reputation actually precedes him. They know what happened to the Egyptians, who, the strongest army in the world. But little do the Philistines know that God is getting ready to work for his people by working against his people in battle. As the covenant-keeping God, He is bringing upon His people covenant curses. 
They are being condemned. They are bearing the curse of the covenant for their disobedience to Him. And first and foremost, He's taking out the leadership. You see, God will always work for His covenant children. But you understand also that not all who descended from Abraham are Abraham's offspring. And that is certainly the case here. So God's judgment is first coming to the nation of Israel because He's going to judge the wicked in the nation. And He's going to start by putting to death the leadership, namely Hophni and Phinehas, who are responsible for conveying the glory of God to the nation of Israel. Remember in the last chapter, God told Samuel that He said, I'm about to do a new thing in Israel. And he said what that meant was to punish Eli's house forever for the iniquity that he knew. The God that the nation is bringing out to bring them good luck on the battlefield is actively working for their loss in battle. He is actively working against them. He's no good luck charm. He is the sovereign God of the universe who uses even tragedy to bring about good for His people. Don't lose sight of what is being accomplished in the grand picture. God is going to establish His kingdom once and for all, ultimately through Christ. In the near field, we're going to see David being established as king, but ultimately through Christ, God is bringing all of this thing about for His glory. Don't lose sight of that, but in the process, He's also going to judge the wicked in the nation for their sin of disobedience, ultimately to bring about good for His people. So naturally, Hophni and Phinehas die in battle on the same day as God said what happened. But afterwards, what we see is that God's glory then purges the wicked from Israel. They obviously lose the battle. Tons die. Not just Hophni and Phinehas, but then we learn about the death of some others. So Eli, who is mostly blind and and way past fighting age, is back home at the temple. When word reaches him, a man runs from the scene of battle. You notice his clothes are torn and ashes are on his head. He's mourning over the great loss that has taken place on the battlefield. He's booked it some 15 miles or more, and he tells the whole city what's happened. Eli can't see, probably can't hear very well either, and he's sitting there going, what happened, what happened, why is everybody yelling? And the man comes to him and says, your sons have died. And Eli is waiting for the bad news. Obviously, he's been told that that's going to happen. And then in verse 17, look with me, it says, And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. So the worst news to Eli is that the ark was captured. That's news that he didn't expect to hear. Who would expect that? He had heard that his sons were going to die. But what about the ark? Why would God allow the ark to fall into the hands of the enemy? The ark is seen as God's footstool. Why would He let Himself go into captivity? That makes absolutely no sense. He has not only upset our expectations in battle, but now He has totally shattered our worldview. How in the world could He let this happen? But you see, this death here is latent with irony. The city gate is what we now think of as the town square. Town square is where we build our courthouses in most places. That is where judgment 
happens in the city is there in the courthouse. Um, and it's at the center of the town. But what we think of now as the town square being the center of the town, back then in Eli's day, the city gate was the town square. And so Eli, the blind judge, irony, is sitting there at the city gate when he hears God's judgment passed against him. How ironic is that? And against his whole family, actually. And we also learn right there in that scene that not only was he old, we already knew that, but he's also heavy. All right, bear with me for just a second. You got to put on your thinking caps, okay? You with me? Remember first grade? You got to put on your thinking caps. We got a lot of work to do. I always hated when my teacher said that, all right? But just trust me on this. It pays off, I think, in the end. So we learn that he is heavy. Now, the word for heavy is a variation of the word that also means glory or weight, okay? So when you think about glory, the glory of God, what's being communicated there is something similar to his weightiness. That's his glory. It's, he makes an earth-shattering impact. What he says goes because he is a heavyweight, right? Well, the word that is used to describe Eli here is a, the same word, just a different variation of that same word that also means heavy. So throughout this, the remainder of this passage, the author of 1 Samuel is going to use this word several times in a sort of ironic twist. And he's going to begin this sort of repetition of this word. And you're going to see it appear almost untranslated in the next passage, where Phineas's wife in verse 19, who's pregnant with a baby, hears of her father-in-law's death, her husband's death, the capture of the ark, and it's all too much for her to bear, and so she goes into early labor. And she's there right before she gives death, and it says to us in verse 20, look with me, and about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So at the end of this text, there is this repetition, starting in verse 20, of this same word which you see there as the name that's given to the kid, Ichabod. The word kavod is the Hebrew word that means glory. Put the I at the beginning of it, and it asks a question, something like a question, like where has the glory gone, or where is the glory? And the author says, supposedly, because the priests have died and because the ark has been captured. And then the author comes back, and the, the, the lady, the daughter of the daughter-in-law of Eli, the wife of Phineas, comes back and repeats that phrase again. Eli is described not as kavod, but as kaved. He's heavy. The ark is kavod. It's glorious. You understand the priesthood and all of the tabernacle furniture, like the Ark of the Covenant and everything that is in there, is the glory of all of Israel. 
That's where they are supposed to convene with God, where they're supposed to meet with God. And the priesthood is supposed to convey the glory of God to Israel. They're supposed to be the ones who introduce Israel to God and God to Israel and stand there in the gap between Israel and God. They are supposed to represent the glory of the covenant God to all of the people. But in Israel, the priests don't represent the kavod, the glory of God. Instead, they've gotten kaved, heavy. They've gotten fat. And mind you, how have they gotten fat? They've gotten fat Rather than introducing God to the people, they have stolen from God what is rightfully His. Both in the people that serve there in the tabernacle, ministering the women that serve there, and in the choicest portions of the sacrifice that they have taken for themselves. So then at the end of verse 21, you're left with the assumption that all of the heavyweights of Israel, the priests who are supposed to represent the glory of God and the glory of God represented there on the ark have all departed and this is a real tragedy. But then the author comes back through the mouth of this lady who dies in verse 22 and says, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. So the final breath with which she speaks is truth. The real glory in all of Israel. The real heavyweight here, the one that brings real glory of God to us, is not the priesthood. It's the Lord of all creation. As Peter Lightheart says of Eli, his death was mourned as the departure of glory, but it was in the final analysis merely the death of a gloriously fat man. What do we have here in the death of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas? We have people who have sinned against God, misrepresented the glory of God to the nations, and they died not as glorious ones, but as fat men. This is an unfathomable event. But it's not without precedence that Israel would lose a battle, even with the ark present. They lost in the days of Joshua when they went into the city of Ai, having just left Jericho. They lost in battle because of the sins of one person, Achan. But God allowing himself to be captured? That's crazy. How could this possibly be? You see, Israel had long since sought to transform the God of their ancestors, into a God that functioned a lot more like a good luck charm who sat in heaven and was there to serve them and their needs whenever they wanted. They were able to keep God in their little box and He had to stay in His place and they could conjure Him up whenever they wanted, but otherwise He was completely impotent. See, their hearts had gotten heavy but it wasn't because they were filled with the glory of Israel, which is the God of the universe. They had gotten fat with sin. They could ignore His statutes because this is a God of their own making. They could ignore who He actually was, and instead, they could think of Him as a very passive, very uncaring, and very distant God of sorts with a little g. Then when they needed Him, they could call Him along, they could sprinkle magic dust on the situation. They could win in battle with the good fortune that He provides. But what we see clearly in the text is God will be no man's good luck charm. 
He works on His own side. And those who are unrighteous are diametrically opposed to Him. He doesn't need Israel to fight His battles. Sometimes the God that we worship is not the God who is actually described on the pages of Scripture, but a God that we've conjured up in our own minds, a God of our own making, our own imagination. He never disciplines me for my sin. He doesn't care when I disobey. He, he comes to me with a soft touch and a warm hug and a light voice. You see, He loves me just the way I am and He would never seek to change me about anything because God made me this way. He wants me to be happy. He wants me to be healthy. And He wants me to be wealthy. And you know, when I come to worship on Sunday, He wants me to feel emotionally charged. He wants me to feel psychologically balanced. He wants me to feel physically prepared to tackle my week. That's the purpose of church after all, isn't it? I should leave here having the warm fuzzies. I come here to worship, sing my magic words, hear my psychological incantations, take my special concoction of bread and juice, drink my magic elixir, hold my head just right and my mouth just right, and presto, God fixes all the bad things in my life. Isn't that what the Bible is telling me? This God is? So when life begins to turn, and perhaps my health fails me, or I'm in poverty, perhaps the music in the church doesn't give me those warm fuzzies, or the psychological incantations from the preacher aren't particularly helpful to me, or the church feels somewhat purposeless, or God begins to feel very distant from me. When I walk out of this room feeling a little bit more depressed about myself than when I walked in, I begin to question whether or not God is actually real. Is He, is he true? God, where are you? Do you even hear my prayers? And soon, our whole spiritual life begins to fall apart because we say to ourselves, God has apparently left me. But in reality, God hasn't left you. He has set His affections on His children and He promises never to leave them. What's happening is the God that you've manufactured in your own head that is in any way based on the God of the Bible is being crumbled before you. And the blessing of it all is that the actual God of the universe is bringing Him to a ruin. What you've called worship may be actually just a ritual that you've sought to perform week in and week out, hoping that maybe if I check this box or that box, or if I do this thing, or if I say this prayer just right, or if I sing these songs loud enough, or if I come here for this or come here for that, then He'll bless me. It's tantamount to rubbing the lucky rabbit's foot kept God in your pocket and week in and week out you give it a little rub hoping that the rest of your life works out swell I did all I can do your best let God take care of the rest isn't that what's so commonly said to us 
But with this fragile image of God that you've got in your own mind, we have no room for a God who in this text crushes His own people for their good and for His glory. Who brings emotional distress and demoralizing loss sometimes. See, the God of the Bible is not, contrary to maybe some of our beliefs, not pacing back and forth in heaven, wringing His hands, waiting on you to choose Him. What an impotent version of God. We think that's preposterous to think about those things, but we actually sing songs about it. Not here, but I grew up singing them. The Savior is waiting to enter your heart. Why don't you let Him come in? That's a God of your own imagination who is nowhere described on the pages of Scripture. He's not in the Bible at all. And it's a a God of your own imagination that may have been contributed to by pastors along the way. It may have been taught to you since you were a little kid. But it's it's a God who is not in the pages of the actual Bible. A God who would otherwise save you, but you know what? He's thwarted by your locked door. You just put up the stiff arm and he falls like an Auburn defensive end. (laughs) And if you believe in a God that impotent, that fragile, then I can only imagine what happens to that idol when tragedy strikes your life. Because the idol that you've professed faith in is so weak, even if he saw coming what's happened to you, he's too weak to do anything about it. And all that's left is maybe, just maybe, he's sitting in heaven thinking, well, how can I make something good out of this? Instead, what we find on page after page of Scripture is the sovereign Lord of all creation who routinely brings suffering to His people, but He does it for their own good. He does it for His glory. He does it to establish His kingdom and fulfill His promises. Who brings covenant curses on on His own people as the nation of Israel suffers tragic loss on the battle. The loss of their military. The loss of their ark. But that He might establish His kingdom from the ruin brought about by their sin. Because you understand what he's accomplishing in the long-term effects is ultimately to send his own son to live a sinless life. And yet, he did not take the glories of the sinless life. Instead, he actually took the covenant curses, all of them, on his own shoulders. Curses that he did not earn, that he did not deserve. He goes to the cross and takes all of those covenant curses on his own shoulders that he might make atonement for your sin. God's bringing about the greatest tragedy in all of human history, the death of His own Son, where He's going to pour all of those covenant curses out on His shoulders. See, on the pages of Scripture, we find a God who is described to us as not only holy and just, but who has every right in His holiness and justice to destroy us. And yet, in His mercy and love, chooses instead to forgive us by punishing His own Son on our behalf. That's the God we find on the pages of Scripture who has engineered human history to bring about that effect precisely. 
Christian, the best thing that you could do in your entire life is to embrace the God of the Bible who is far more complex than you could ever imagine, who invites himself to be studied through his word, but who could never be exhausted, and who actively weaves all of the threads of your life, the good and the bad, together for your good and for his own glory. The sovereign controller of all who brings all these things into effect. Who cannot be held in your pocket. Who cannot be rubbed or wished upon. He cannot be used as a charm. But who is trusted. Who is to be feared. Who is to be worshipped. Because see, when things don't go according to plan, there's only one God that actually stands up to the test. And it's not the lucky rabbit's foot in the pocket. It's not the God who's there to serve all of your needs. It's the God who has saved His people for His own glory. It's the God who reveals Himself in the pages of Scripture as the one who sits in heaven and does whatever He pleases. It's the one who has called you as His people out of darkness and into light who has engineered your life to bring about your good and His glory, who is actively working as the artist to paint this entire picture. The lucky charm doesn't stand the test of time. Because as soon as things turn bad for you, what good is this lucky charm? Throw it out. The God of the universe has called you to Him. And he's working on your behalf through Christ for the glory of his own name. That's why he can be trusted. Because he is not going to deny himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how difficult it is in the midst of life sometimes to be settled on you who reveal yourself in the pages of Scripture. So often we want to rely on those little trinkets in our own life. So often we want to think that we are in control. That we've got you in our pocket. But your word tells us it's precisely the opposite. You have us in your hand. Pray, Father, that this understanding of who you are actually sits heavy on our hearts. It informs everything we think about, everything we do, everything that motivates us to live for your glory, knowing that this whole story is about you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.